This morning's reading is taken from John chapter 19, verse 38, through to chapter 12, verse 18. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping, looked in and saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple went in, who had reached the tomb first, and he saw and believed For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, 
Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Thank you, Sarah. And please do keep that passage open, um, page 906 in the Church Bibles. It will help you, hopefully, to, to be able to see it and certainly help me. Um, and let me say hello and happy Easter Sunday. It's very good to be here with you. And um, thank you for joining us. Uh, my name is Roger and I'm one of the ministers here. Um, and it is a joyful day. Uh, joy is exactly the right word for Easter Sunday morning. There's not a huge amount of joy in our world at the moment, is there? It's a lot of scandal, a lot of stress, a lot of suffering, always a lot of death, but not much joy. And by joy, I don't mean the kind of mindless, contentless escapism. You know that Pharrell Williams song, I'm Happy? It's undeniably groovy, but it is also entirely vacuous. I'm happy, because I'm happy. Are you happy? I'm happy. Or the upbeat can-do comedy of Ted Lasso, or the escapist excitement of watching marble racing on YouTube, which apparently post-pandemic is a real thing, or actually finding a shopping bargain amongst the higher prices, or the satisfaction of a sunny day, or seeing the spring shoots come up in plant pots. The joy of Easter Sunday is not a temporary thrill to make us forget the grim realities of this life. It's not an escape from the world. Easter is a genuine solution to the world's biggest problem, the problem of death. Easter really is, as Robin said, the most wonderful news that anyone can ever hear if we get our heads and hearts around it. So let me pray. Uh, for God's help as we turn to his word and think what really happened that first Easter Sunday. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you that this is not a world without hope, not a world that you've given up on, not a world where death has the last laugh, but rather is a world where there's real joy and hope and purpose to be found. Please help us all to see that this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you'll see on the back of the sheet you were given, um, there's an outline of where we're going. If you want to count down the minutes, that'll give you a sense of how we're working our way through. I've titled the talk, What Really Happened to Jesus of Nazareth? In actual, factual reality, what happened that first Sunday morning after the cross and his death? Without exaggeration, I think that is one of the most important questions to think about in the whole of human life and human study, human knowledge, what happened to Jesus that first Sunday morning? It matters to us here, I guess, because the whole, of credi- the whole credibility of Christianity hangs on this. The Apostle Paul famously said, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we should be pitied as Christians above all people. Pitied because of our naive gullibility, believing a lie. Pitied because we're all wasting our time and energy and efforts being here this morning. 
But the flip side is also true. If Jesus did rise from the dead, in fact, well then each of our eternal futures hangs on what we make of it, personally. It could not matter more. And yet one of the curious things about Easter Sunday is how little people are willing to engage with it carefully, investigate it, look into what happened. I'm not sure why that is. Perhaps there's a sense in our culture that Christianity has kind of had its day. The church is closing or combining all over Scotland. Maybe this message of Easter and kind of its hope was was yesterday's news, a nice feel-good story for previous generations. That does overlook the fact that the denominations in decline have lost confidence in the Easter story and the Bible that proclaims it. Actually, if you look globally, um, where people do proclaim this Easter story from the Bible, there's real growth and life. Perhaps others, though, don't want to engage with what actually happened at Easter because in a multicultural society, we don't want to rock the boat. Isn't it going to be politically and culturally easier not to make any really grand claims? No one to be too serious about their beliefs. Then we can all get along much better. One of the things that struck me in the commentary about Kate Forbes in the media, um, everyone was asking the power question. Kind of, how will she govern? How will she impact our rights? No one asked the truth question. Is what she believes credible? Why does someone like this believe in Jesus? What's the evidence for and against that? I think that happens in a post-Christian culture. People can be sure they don't like Jesus and don't want Jesus, but actually have never actually looked at Jesus, not closely. And so I'm hoping and praying as we turn to John's gospel here, chapter 20, that we are eager to know what really did happen, whether we call ourselves a follower of Jesus or not. We're going to walk through what happened uh, with, with three basic points, the stakes, the scene, and then the surprise. Um, and then at the end, I'll spell out some implications. But firstly, let's get into the stakes. What was at stake that first Easter Sunday as Mary from the town of Magdala, that's why she's called Magdalene, Mary from Magdala, when she headed to that tomb in the dark, why did it matter what had happened to the body of Jesus of Nazareth? Well, for this lady, Mary, there was, of course, a personal grief. One of the striking things about John's account is how much it focuses on her. We see this event through her experience. The camera repeatedly comes back to her. And multiple times we're told that she's weeping. Just look with me. Verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Or verse 13. The angels ask her, woman, why are you weeping? Or verse 15, the risen Jesus asks her, woman, why are you weeping? See the repetition? I mean, we're definitely supposed to notice Mary is weeping. Why is she weeping? I think it's understandable, isn't it? On many levels. Anyone here who's lost a loved one to death knows the sense of loss, of shock, of sorrow, of ache, that kind of heart ache. And how much more for her with Jesus, the most kind, loving, generous, gracious, patient, powerful, wise, selfless, strong human being there's ever been. Jesus, who in her own life had been instrumental to help set her free 
from an oppressive occultic background. But actually, it wasn't just the beautiful life of Jesus that would have grieved her. It was the ugly, terrible way he died. His death on the cross had been one of the most humiliating, horrific kinds of death. There was a, a travesty of justice. He was declared innocent and then killed anyway. Uh, there was violence as he was brutally kind of beaten beforehand and then strung up on a cruel Roman cross. But actually, it wasn't just the loss of her wonderful friend, nor just the horror of crucifixion. It was also what was at stake that first Sunday morning. At stake was whether all the promises, all the hopes that Jesus had offered, or whether they were actually true, or just another human leader promising the world and not delivering. See, all the way through John's Gospel, Jesus had been making big claims. He claimed he was the, he'd come to offer life, eternal life, lasting life, satisfying life. Uh, John 4, uh, I can give you living water, a kind of water that springs up from your heart and, and to eternal life. John 6, he said, I'm the bread of life. You need to come and, and get life from me. John 10, I came as the good shepherd so people could have life, life to the full. John 14, I am the way, the truth, the life. And biggest of all, John 11, by the, friend, by the tomb of his friend Lazarus, this verse that Robin read earlier, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes and lives in me shall never die. Jesus had offered to anyone who believed in him nothing less than a solution to death. He'd offered to fix the one problem that human beings have never been able to solve. The problem we're often too scared to even discuss, the death problem. He said he had authority to grant life to people who believe in him, not just life to the full now, knowing God life, but eternal life to come beyond the grave, resurrection life. He said he could smash death to pieces. He could provide forgiveness and eternal life knowing God forever. That's what, why, by the way, you, you can't say the message of Christianity is out of date. It might be wrong. It might be a lie. It's definitely not irrelevant. Any day of the week, any country on the globe, any street in Scotland, people are dying, going to meet their maker. It's relevant to every age, from the young to the old. Our nearly five-year-old son has just started to get worried about death. He's just discovered people die, get put in boxes with dirt over them. He's genuinely worried. Easter Sunday couldn't have come at a better time and were more relevant to even his little life. See, if Jesus can do something about that, death, forgiveness in the face of judgment, Eternal life. Well, no wonder the crowds hung on his every word. That's what's at stake. But of course, by this particular point in history, the start of chapter 20, just on this dark Easter Sunday morning before dawn, it did seem like all of that hope, all of those powerful words were dead and buried. The crowds were gone. The light was snuffed out. It was now just Mary and her tears. And that wouldn't be the first time, would it, 
Great hopes end up dashed. Many folk in life promise great things and just can't deliver. Life coaches who turn out to be just after the money. Politicians who were just after the votes. Religious leaders just after the crowds. Can they actually deliver? Or do circumstances, even if they want to, do circumstances and other people and unforeseen complications kind of get in the way? With Jesus, did he promise life but get beaten by death? Did he make grand grand claims, but in the end, the the might of Rome's soldiers and the opposition of the Jewish leaders and the mob mentality of the crowd, just too strong, overwhelmed him? That's what's at stake this first Easter Sunday morning, is hope dead and buried. Let's get to the scene. This is our second point, the scene. Um, And just notice here, multiple eyewitnesses saw strange facts on the ground. The first strange, unexpected thing to see hits Mary in verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. That's the first fact of what Mary saw. She saw a stone that had previously covered the tomb, now moved away. And her reaction is perfectly natural, isn't it? She suspects foul play and runs for backup, verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That's John, uh, the gospel writer. And said to him, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. Notice Mary doesn't say, Jesus is alive. (laughs) Happy Easter. He's risen. No, her mind doesn't jump there. It jumps to foul play. Because what else could explain a tomb that's been tampered with, opened up? Some group must have broken in. Maybe grave robbers, maybe the Jewish authorities, maybe the Roman soldiers, maybe some fanatical disciples. Something must explain the stone being rolled away. Now notice the words she says really carefully. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. That statement from Mary, we're going to hear it three times, or a version of it three times. It's here in verse 2, it's again in verse 13, and in verse 15. In fact, it's what she says when she's asked, why are you weeping? They have taken the Lord. That's the theory she's running with to explain what she sees. Which is to say, Jesus has faced another indignity. Even after his death, he's still being carted around by other people. He's still falling into the hands of others, these grave robbers or enemies. Other people are still in control of what's happening to him and where he ends up going. And of course, she's been separated from him even more. Now, not just by death itself, but she doesn't even know where to find the body. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. That's the theory she's running with. That's why she ends up weeping at the tomb in verse 11. Except the problem is, the facts on the ground don't fit that explanation at all. We're going to get a number of eyewitness details in verses 3 to 8. And they just don't fit Mary's hypothesis. Just have a look, verse 3. Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I like that detail. Um, if you've ever wondered whether, who would win in a sprint between John and Peter, it turns out it's John. Um, I mean, it's totally unnecessary, isn't it? If you were writing a myth, you wouldn't bother with that. But if you're writing eyewitness testimony, 
you say it how you saw it. Um, and uh, John's a bit, he may be faster, but he's, he's a little bit more cautious than Peter. So he stoops to look in, verse 5, and sees the linen cloths lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, he may be slow, but he's brave, following him, went straight into the tomb, just piles in. And what did he see? Well, he also saw the linen cloths lying there. And notice verse 7, because he's further into the tomb, he can also look kind of around and see the face cloth, which, has been, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who'd reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed. Okay, so what are the facts on the ground from these eyewitnesses? Four of them, I think. The stone has been moved. The tomb is now empty of the body. But weirdly, the linen cloths are there. And even more weirdly, the face cloth is folded up separate to the other linen cloths. What does that do to Mary's theory? They have taken him away. Well, there are major problems, aren't there? No self-respecting grave robber would ever leave the linen cloths and the spices. That was the really valuable stuff. No desperate, fanatical, fearful disciple would have the time or would bother to strip the body in situ and calmly fold up the garments. Obviously, the authorities, whether Jewish or Roman, would have no reason to leave the cloths either. It's only going to raise questions. Better to whisk the whole body wrapped up away quickly, get it to a different secure location. And of course, if they did have the body, well then when rumours started swirling around the city that people were seeing Jesus raised from the dead, well they would have brought it out. But no one did have the body. The tomb was empty, the body was gone, the grave clothes were still there. In fact, the headcloth was folded separately. Striking, it's not like Lazarus in John 11, who Jesus raised from the dead. He came out of the tomb fully wrapped up. Someone had to un- 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 unwind him, <laughs> unravel him. No, something really strange has happened here, really extraordinary. And notice, far from being at the mercy of other people, being carted around by thieves or authorities or even disciples, no, the empty tomb and the linen cloths say that this body is no longer here because it's no longer dead. Just like in the trial and his crucifixion, Jesus is not a passive victim of the power of others. He's an active agent. We've seen that all this week. Active during his interrogations, pointing out the problems with others. Active on the cross, choosing to go to his death. And now even active in his tomb. Just to say, I don't actually know precisely how the cloth got into that position, or particularly how the body came out of the cloths. No one witnessed it, so we're not told. It would just be speculation. It could be that Jesus sat up and in his kind of resurrection strength unwrapped himself. It could be that the angels helped unwrap him. Or it may well be that Jesus' resurrection body passed through the cloths when he was raised. Um, That that is possible, because later in the chapter, he enters a locked room. It does seem like his body now has a different relationship to atomic quantum reality compared to ours. But I don't actually know how he got out of the cloths. What we do know is his body was no longer dead and buried. And the grave cloths were deliberately left there to make the points. Folded calmly by the risen Lord. Someone at the 930 
service pointed out. That's remarkable. The first thing Jesus did when he was raised from the dead was folding. <laughs> Fold a sheet. But that's the scene. And it's a scene so strange, so extraordinary, so kind of out of normal experience that all of the followers there are struggling to grasp it, as we would have if we'd seen it with our own eyes. Verse 9 says that though the the disciples do um, believe something, verse 8, they're still struggling to compute what can explain these facts. Particularly, they're, they're struggling to understand that the Old Testament scriptures predicted this would happen to God's chosen king. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons I take Easter really seriously. Sometimes, sometimes we say things like, it would take an absolutely massive amount of proof to ever persuade me that someone could rise from the dead. I mean, I don't just need an empty tomb and some linen cloths. I'd need God to write a message in the sky to the whole world saying, my king rose from the dead. Of course, God has written a message just like that to the whole world. We're, we're reading it this morning. He didn't choose the sky. He's used words on, on, in Scripture as his medium. But to prove it's him, he didn't just say it after the event, like in John's Gospel. He said it before the event, in the Jewish Scriptures, before Jesus, said it multiple times. You could look back to Psalm 16, speaking about God's chosen king, You will not abandon my soul to the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. That's a quote. The king will rise. Or you could look at Isaiah 53, speaking about God's chosen servant. He dies this death on behalf of others, even though he's innocent. He's killed as a criminal. He's buried in a rich man's grave. And by the way, you only get a kind of stone to cover the entrance if you're rich. Um, A rich man's grave. And then after he's dead, Isaiah 53... He will see his family and prosper. He'll have a life afterwards. Or Psalm 110, if you've been around at Chalmers for Hebrews. God's chosen king will end up at his right hand as a priest forever. How do you do that if you're a human being? Resurrection. You see, there's plenty of passages. That's just three of them. There's more. Plenty of passages saying this is the plan. But the disciples, despite all that preparation, I mean, let's be honest, it's not every day you see a risen risen body, is it? A resurrection. It was so stupefyingly, startling, extraordinary what had just happened. Even his own followers struggled to come to terms with it. Tonight, we're going to see with uh, Thomas, who said, I'm never going to believe that when he heard. He said, I'm going to have to poke the nail marks to be convinced Jesus is alive. By the way, that puts the lie to the popular idea that goes around that in the past, people were just gullible and naive and kind of not sophisticated like we are. We know science. They didn't really. Um, I do think that's a kind of chronological snobbery, as if people back then were ready to believe in resurrections at the drop of a hat. Actually, they were more familiar with death, lower life expectancy, care in the community, more familiar with death than we are. And they'd seen enough deaths to know people don't come back. That's the scene. They see all these strange facts and they're struggling to make sense of it. Third point, the surprise, the surprise. Now here we come back to Mary. Here we see her weeping and we get that repeated question, why are you weeping, Mary? Because if we really understand what happened on that first Easter Sunday, there's reason for joy, reason for confidence, 
whatever's going on in life, confidence through our tears. Let's just read again from verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. There's her theory again. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know what it was. Jesus said to him, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. It's such a moving moment, this. Mary has returned to the tomb now. She's weeping, she's distraught, believing still that Jesus has fallen victim to someone else's agenda. And so God sends two angelic messengers to help her see through the tears to what really happened at Easter. Why are you weeping, Mary? Don't you realize what's happening here? But actually, Jesus doesn't just rely on the angels. He's so kind, isn't he? Ever mindful of individual people and their needs. He returns to the tomb personally to comfort Mary in her tears. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. Now, can you hear the irony here? Notice her statement has changed slightly. She's no longer saying they have taken him away. She now thinks it might be this gardener figure in front of her. Have you done something with the body? Well, yes, he has, actually, because this is Jesus. That's the point. He's not a victim of other people's schemes. He's not out of control, being buffeted around by the plans and power of other people. No, as he said earlier in the gospel, John 10, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Listen to this. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus is in charge this Sunday morning. He was in, on his, in his trial, surprisingly. He was at the cross, surprisingly, and now even at the graveside. But Mary still doesn't recognize him until that glorious, wonderful, moving moment when he calls her by her name. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai. Now, we don't know what tone Jesus said the word Mary in, but she knows. She recognized it instantly. She'd heard it before. John 10 says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, Listen to this. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Mary, it's me. It's really me. And so her weeping in grief is turned, I guess, to weeping for joy. This stupendous, overwhelming, massive flood of joy and relief and wonder and astonishment. He's not dead. 
He's not been taken away by someone else. He's not missing. He's here in front of me, risen from the dead, smashing death to pieces. He really is the resurrection and the life. That's part of the surprise. And what an amazing surprise it is. Actually, and this is the thing that's surprised me about John 20, there's something else surprising that happens next. Because strikingly, just as Mary is clinging on to him for joy and relief, and I guess a bit of, I'm never going to let you go, God, I'm never going to let you out of my sight now, Jesus says he needs, she needs to let him go. Because he has a mission to still complete and a message for her to deliver. Striking that. This is verse 17. Verses that really surprised me. It's wonderful, though. Jesus' work isn't quite finished. At this point, he's paid for our sins on the cross, taken the punishment we deserve. He's risen from the dead, proving that it was finished and smashing death to pieces. But verse 17, he's got one more thing to do. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. It's just worth pausing and thinking how surprising all of this is. Like, Jesus is really kind and came specifically to the tomb to comfort Mary, to help her. Why are you weeping? Called her by her name with all that gentle, compassionate affection that he always exhibits to the vulnerable and the suffering. And then almost immediately he says, okay, Mary, now's not the time for an extended hug. I've got a mission to keep on with and you've got a message I need you to deliver. Striking. Whatever this is, it must be really important to not just stay there. Amazing moment. So let's just look at verse 17 again. Do not cling to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus is saying he's not going to stay on earth. He's going to return to God the Father. Why is he doing that? Well, we're not actually told here, because we've already had it explained to us earlier in John. John chapters 13 to 17 are all Jesus preparing his disciples for when he goes away, goes back to the Father. He keeps saying, I am going to leave you physically to go to God the Father and then send the Holy Spirit so that you can know God in a new and special way. Now we might think, oh man, that's a major downgrade, losing Jesus physically with you. Jesus said it was a major upgrade because once the Spirit had come, his followers could know God in a whole new way. And in fact, people all over the earth could know God, even people in Edinburgh in the 21st century who weren't in the garden or waiting back in the locked room with the disciples. Jesus is saying, I have to go back to the Father to open the doors for this relationship with God to everyone. John 14 put it like this. In my Father's house are many rooms, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Well, later in John 14, it said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. And so here now in verse 17, he says, Go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. See that family language? It's new. He hasn't called his disciples brothers at this point, up to this point in John. The point is, now that I've paid for your sins on the cross and I've risen from the dead, we can be a family, brothers. And notice, I'm ascending to my father and your father. As in, you can now call God father, my God and your God. The point being that when Jesus returns to the father and sends the Holy Spirit, a personal relationship with God as Father is now going to be possible for anyone who believes in him wherever they are, whenever they are, until he returns. Not just limited to those physically around in first century Jerusalem, not just limited to Mary clinging on to him, but extended to us, listening now to his word by his Spirit. Now, I realize if, if you're new to Christian things, that, all that last bit might sound all a bit strange. Actually, this is the testimony of every Christian in this building. I know God as my Father, our Heavenly Father. How? Well, through Jesus' words and the Holy Spirit who's come to live in my heart. We have that direct relationship with God because of what Jesus did on the cross in his resurrection, and in him going back to the Father. Those of us who've been going through Hebrews know that, don't we? It was, he had to go up to sit at God's right hand to open the doors of a direct relationship with God. And it's the testimony of countless millions of people across the globe and across the centuries since the, this event. It's actually one of the most striking bits of evidence that Jesus is alive, that, that Easter Sunday was real, a resurrection. If Jesus was still dead and buried, those 11 scared disciples would have collapsed. Church would never have been born and certainly never have grown. Or when the might of the Roman Empire tried to squash out the church, or the Soviet Union tried to squash out the church, or China tries to squash out the church, or extreme terrorist groups go around the Middle East saying, if you're a Christian, we will kill you. Nevertheless, Jesus has been meeting people and calling them by name, and the church has grown across the globe from this day onwards. Why? Because he went back to his father, sent the Holy Spirit, and started calling people all over the globe through his word. Amazing moment, isn't it? Jesus leaves Mary here so he can go and throw open the doors of eternal life to people like us. So, time to close. Let me just spell out um, a few implications of all of this, uh, which is really just summary of what we've already said. So what are the implications of all these facts on the ground? The, the, the stone rolled away, the, the tomb with no body in it, the linen cloth sat there, the folded headcloth just to the side. What are the implications and the fact that multiple witnesses saw Jesus alive, well, it means, firstly, that death is not the end. 
I know from our limited perspective and experience, it really does look like when you die, it's all over. We don't see the other side. But the Bible says over and over and over again that death is not the end. And Easter Sunday proves that message, proving it in space-time history. Now at that point, implications B and C, I think, become really important. I think lots of people, lots of folk would think, well, I can happily ignore God, and it won't make much difference. It doesn't seem to make a difference to my life at the moment. I can enjoy his world, ignore his words, and that'll be okay. Everyone seems to get away with it. But the reality is that all of us will one day be raised to stand before our maker, to give an account of our lives. We don't see it yet because it's the other side of the grave. Without the forgiveness that Jesus offers, no one will have a leg to stand on. And so how amazing that Jesus, this good shepherd, laid down his life on the cross to pay the price for us and open the way to knowing God. And knowing God, not just as some distant maker in the background or some scary judge to which we're heading, but as our heavenly father today, That's part of the joy of Easter, if you're a Christian. Tell my brothers I'm going to my father and your father. So if you're not a Christian this Easter time, can I ask you, what is stopping you finding forgiveness and life in Jesus? When John's Gospel talks about eternal life, what Jesus means is life to the full now, knowing God. This is eternal life, knowing God, and then life forever in God's new creation. What's stopping you finding that forgiveness in him? Or at the very least, investigating whether there's any truth to that offer. And those of us who are Christians, I'm aware many of us are going through the mill at the moment, struggling with suffering or illness or the shadow of death even. Jesus calls us by name and says, even through our tears, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I will come back and take you home. My resurrection proves it. Those are great reasons to rejoice on an Easter Sunday. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for his kindness, his compassion, his gentleness. But most of all this morning, we thank you for his power, his authority over death itself. And thank you that he returned to your side, that he might offer a relationship with you as our Father to all who trust in him. Help us to uh, encourage each other with these words afterwards. In Jesus' name. Amen.